Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Nicholas Walton and in this podcast the book is Reporting the EU, News, Media and the European Institutions by John Lloyd and Christina Marconi. John Lloyd joined me on a crackly early morning phone line from London and told me how the book had come about. Uh, the book was written for the Reuters Institute which I with others founded about eight years ago. It's now an institute within Oxford University. And the brief of the organization is to is twofold. One, it has a fellowship program, but it also does lots of research. And what we try to do is to identify the main issues, problems, um, challenges in journalism and research, uh, have seminars, debates, conferences, and publish on them. And that we thought for some time that the coverage of Europe, coverage of the European Union, was one such challenge, um, mainly because much has been written about this, that the coverage tends to be, and it is overwhelmingly, national, nationally based. You have a, a transnational organization, an institute, institution based in Brussels, um, but covered by national media, essentially asking the question, what's the EU doing for us, whether it's Italy or Germany or France or the UK. So we wanted to see what that did for the understanding of the European Union. Uh, so that was the main brief. And you yourself, you're, you're a journalist. Have you uh, spent much of your time covering uh, the European Union institutions? No, uh, I've been uh, mainly on the Financial Times, for 20-odd years, and it was split more or less half and half between covering the UK domestically, where I was an industrial and labour correspondent, and then um, covering uh, Eastern Europe uh, and East Central Europe in the days before communism collapsed and after, and then being bureau chief in Moscow for some uh, over five years. Right. Well, so I didn't cover Europe. I didn't cover Western Europe. I did cover Eastern Europe. But that was before the countries in that area were part of the EU. Right. Now, um, uh, it, it's interesting coming from the point of view of a journalist, simply because the, the nature of the journalism that came out of Brussels often reflected the, you know, the centre of power within Brussels itself, whether it was, on, whether it was waxing or waning or whatever, uh, and, and how it mirrored developments in the EU. If, if we look back at some of the early years of the EU, where it was a project that everyone basically bought into within the Brussels institutions, and now there's a lot more scepticism. Can, um, can you put a bit more flesh on the bones of how the press core within Brussels has developed along this way? At first, in the 50s, when the coverage of the EU really began, most of the coverage was done by 
by people who were who were who had bought into the project. Um, the journalists, including the British journalists, because Britain then became known as being the Eurosceptic capital, but the Brits as well in the early days, 50s and 60s, were to a very large extent um, people who believed deeply in the, the whole um, ideal and practice of the European Union, in part because many of them, probably most of them, and most of them were men, uh, had been part of the... Um, had gone through the war, and many of them had been in the services or in some way involved in the war. Uh, and especially for the uh, continental Europeans, the Italians, the Germans, the French, the, the main impetus, the main ideal of the European Union was that it, um, it was working to ensure that there was no more war in the, in the European continent. And that sense uh, of idealism, the, the, the sense that, um, that the European Union was necessary to bring together, especially France and Germany, but also the other countries, uh, was at the root, I think, of the coverage. And the coverage was sympathetic. Uh, it, it saw the European Union as a new kind of um, system of governance, um, and as it expanded in the 60s and 70s, as, as it took on more powers and brought in more members, it became, I think, in the journalists' eyes, um, um, a force for good, um, something which posed itself within the world against the two great superpowers, Soviet Union and United States in these days, as um, an alternative way to to govern the world, uh, uh, and the scepticism which began to, to come in, not just in the UK, from the 80s onwards, in these early days was largely lacking. So old hands in Brussels look back on these days with some nostalgia, when the press essentially was on their side. Was the press generally less uh, nationally interested? You, you mentioned that earlier as one of the big problems about uh, coverage of the EU, that it often looks at things through a national lens. But the way that you describe it there, it sounds much more in support of, a, of, of the EU as a specifically transnational project. Yes, it was. It still was nationally based, of course. And from the beginning, perhaps inevitably, the... The questions asked were, what is this? Uh, is this good for France? Is this good for Germany? But I think in, especially in Germany and Italy, the two um, main national losers from the, from the, from the Second World War, the, the journalism uh, and the journalists themselves saw uh, what was, what the, in, in what the European Union was doing uh, as a kind of a national salvation, a way in which, and this was especially true in Germany, a way in which these countries could again, or rather, in some cases, first become part of a democratic practice and um, could uh, recoup themselves via the European Union within Europe um, and again become... Um, uh, viable and respected states. It was a way of cleansing, one of the ways of cleansing their, their politics 
of what had been the fascist and the Nazi periods before and during the Second War. So uh, you, one finds in the, uh, in the early practitioners if, of journalism then, both the press, um, the, the press officers within the European Union and the journalists themselves, an identity of view that this, this was a, a, a way of uh, bringing these countries back into um, a democratic framework and putting them on a footing uh, which was quite different from that which they occupied before the war. So, right. Um, so, yeah, sorry, yeah. I was about to say that uh, obviously that was that was obviously in the early couple of uh, first couple of decades for the European Union, yeah. uh, as it, under different names, of course, and then as it evolved and became perhaps something different, and in some areas perhaps more contested, went through stages such as the Maastricht Treaty, and then gradual expansion until especially 2004, where it expanded by 10 extra countries to to reach quite the a sizable 25. Um, more issues came up, and that was reflected in the, the the varying coverage and how that all all changed, and how it was it was perhaps less of a club than it was earlier in Brussels. Yes, I think two things happened. I think in in this area, one, the news media themselves became more sceptical, um, not just about about Europe and the European Union, but but in the way in which they um, approached power. A whole number of things happened. One of them, I think, was the growth of uh, more contested investigative journalism, especially on the, on the back of the, um, of the resignation of Richard Nixon, and uh, the U.S. president, uh, after Watergate. And within journalism, you began to get a more um, skeptical, a more aggressive, a more investigative current running, first of all in the United States, but then much more generally in, in, the, in, in Western journalism. And that, of course, affected the way in which um, the institutions of power were covered within Europe and within the European Union. And secondly, um, especially in the UK, and especially from the 1970s and through the 80s and into the 90s onwards, you've got the growth of Euroscepticism. That's been much associated with Margaret Thatcher, rightly, but it also began to creep into other areas as well. Uh, not the heartland, Germany, Italy, and France, but increasingly in the, uh, in the areas around it. It was disguised by the, um, the collapse of the... Um, of the Soviet bloc uh, and the rejoining of Europe, as people like Václav Havel from Czechoslovakia put it, by the Central and Eastern European countries. And the mission of the EU then beca became much more to bring these countries uh, into the European family. But together with that, you had countries coming in, like, like Czechoslovakia, as it then was... Czech Republic and Slovakia now, who brought into it a different, a different approach to the European Union. In the case of the Czech Republic, itself uh, a skeptic. And so skepticism became much more within journalism, uh, identified with the new, more aggressive, more investigative journalism. And hence, by the 90s, you began to get 
the institutions and the practices of, of, of the union and its institutions much more, um, much more challenged than it had been before. And the, the decline of the journalist who was there essentially to both report on it but also to approve of it began, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. You also got figures like the, now the current mayor of London, Boris Johnson, Mm. who, to some degree at least, wrote the script of Eurosceptic journalism, a, a combination of drama and mockery. Uh, he was writing then for the Daily Telegraph, which was then picked up in popular form by uh, tabloids in this country, in the UK, like The Sun and The Daily Mail, which remains... But in the 80s and 90s, that was their heyday in which Eurosceptic journalism really, um, within Britain at least, ruled the roost and actually began to seep into the coverage of other countries as well. And Boris Johnson famously still claims a hand in the uh, Danish referendum defeat for the European Union. He did. Uh, he wrote a story in which, uh, uh, which, was, which alleged that Jacques Delors, then the president of the European Commission, had a secret plan, which Boris had uncovered, to, to become the, um, uh, the monarch of Europe, the man who ruled Europe uh, and who brought the various countries into consonance with what the European Commission wished. Um, this was published in the Telegraph, was reproduced in Danish newspapers, just before um, the, a, a vote, and um, that vote narrowly went against the Maastricht Treaty. Uh, and um, Boris claimed, and others claimed for him, that he had been the uh, he'd been the, the man who tipped what was a very close contest into the negative side. Right. The um, just get back to the, uh, the the change in the journalistic culture. Uh, you mentioned the growth of investigative journalism, but one of the other things that perhaps has also become quite apparent is that as well as reporting from a point of view of national interests, perhaps quite a few of the journalists looking at Brussels either from within or, 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 or from outside it are also reporting f through the prism of how journalism is uh, conceived of in different parts of Europe. Yes, uh, I mean, journalism differs still quite widely from country to country. Uh, within the UK, it's, it partakes. One, people often talk of, of Anglo-American journalism, which is more factually based um, uh, as against the continental journalism, which was, it, I think it's much different now, but was much more literary based uh, and more, more commentary, where the reporting itself is commentary rather than uh, an attempt to be objective and neutral, which essentially was the hallmark of American and British journalism after the war. So that um, these different traditions, I think, approached Europe in a different way and still to a degree do. The other thing is with the advent of television, and television is now still the most popular news source. Most people get their news from TV news or broadcast news, much more now than, in, than from newspapers. And broadcast news in, in Western Europe, at least, tended to be um, uh, 
dominated by the view that it should be objective and neutral. Uh, it wasn't politically based, by and large. And the big state broadcasters in nearly all of the, the major states did have, and still do have, a, um, a governing philosophy, often imposed by the state itself, that they should be neutral, balanced, fair, and objective. Um, the BBC is the most influential in this, um, but other state broadcasters, and indeed other commercial broadcasters, or rather one should say other public broadcasters, and um, uh, commercial broadcasters, essentially um, uh, believe, in, believe and practice in that form of journalism as well, so that the news and current affairs tends to be, uh, or tries to be, fairly balanced and objective. You don't get strongly um, anti-European broadcasting, or indeed, for that matter, now strongly pro-European broadcasting. That's confined to newspapers and magazines. Uh, I, I was going to get on to the, the peculiar challenges of, uh, of covering the European Union as a, as a story, uh, not least of all for television, uh, which is peculiarly, peculiarly dif difficult. But uh, I, I think we ought to finish the bit where we're, uh, we're building up through the, the way that, that the European Union has changed, things have become more contested. And then, of course, the big event that has brought the European Union very, very firmly uh, back to the top of the news agenda was the Euro crisis kicking off in 2008-2009. Uh, and that suddenly uh, meant that the European Union was top news and didn't have to fight for its place again. Uh, how has that changed things? Well, it did, as you say, mean that what had been regarded as a rather uh, toxic story by many news editors, that is, if you put Europe in the headline or on the top of the bulletin, people would switch off. Uh, uh, that changed because suddenly the currency, the euro, uh, for 17 of the, of the members, states, uh, and the whole of the European um, economy and the various European economies all seemed to be suddenly revealed as fragile. And so um, people paid attention, and they paid particular attention in the most fragile states, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the South. Uh, it meant then that the Brussels press corps, which had been shrinking a bit um, and had felt rather neglected, uh, um, suddenly became again important. And the reporters there, reporters and editors based there or working from their home bases on European news, suddenly had a, a financial crisis to cope with. Most of them were not economic correspondents or trained in economic and financial journalism and they had to learn pretty quickly or put in place where they could financial and economic specialists who could interpret the, the complex measures taken to combat the euro crisis. It meant that the, um, it privileged the big players, um, the big players like um, Financial Times, Economist, Wall Street Journal, uh, New York Times International in the newspapers, um, Reuters, Bloomberg and the news, news agencies, the BBC and one or two other big broadcasters. They had the resources uh, to call upon to cover that properly 
the smaller ones, especially the one-person bureaus, which actually most of the journalists there are in one-person bureaus, and especially from, from poorer countries, found themselves really overwhelmed by the flood of news and the flood of interest. And that meant that the countries actually most affected, like um, Portugal, Ireland, and above all, Greece, uh, tended to lose out because they didn't have big press corps. The few reporters they had there were, were grossly overworked. Uh, and ironically, the, the countries which most needed good, strong, well-informed journalism um, got, um, got least of it. Not the fault of the journalists, but the fault of the resources which they could deploy. Do you think that there was a... a a, a decline in the quality of some of the journalism after the Euro crisis uh, started off simply because you had such high emotive national stakes and uh, stereotyping was rife. Everyone knows quite well the uh, the stereotyping that went on between the, the Greek media and especially the German built tabloid. You got, you got that. I think two things happened and in a way contradictory. One, in some ways, the 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 journalists rose to the, the considerable challenge. They worked very hard. Um, they travelled much more. Um, the, the European world was no longer as focused on Brussels as it was. It went to various uh, other capitals, uh, especially Berlin, as Germany and Angela Merkel emerged as the, leader, the leaders of Europe, uh, to Athens in Greece, um, where the most and to a degree also in Madrid, to Madrid and Spain, where many of the, the most dramatic protests were, and of course television was drawn to that, so that you had um, one uh, more vivid coverage and also more hard-working coverage. And I think many, many of the, the journalists there really did rise to the occasion extremely well. On the other hand, as you suggest, you did get a reflection of the, 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 the strains within the European Union, especially between Germany, which did then and still does um, occupy the position of the, the guardian of, of what's come to be known as austerity uh, in um, economic, um, economic practice, um, uh, insisting that the first, the, the first thing that, that what they would see as profligate governments, especially in the South, Spain, Greece, Italy, reform their economies before, um, before the rules are relaxed, and these economies themselves, which um, see the rules, the German-imposed rules, as they come to be seen as being um, too tight, um, too punishing for their economies to, to recover. And that then is reflected and was, as you say, reflected very much on um, in the coverage of what is the continent's biggest selling paper, uh, Bild Zeitung in Germany, of especially of Greece, but also to a degree too of the other um, the other uh, southern states, um, which were represented both by um, politicians and by above all by the newspaper as essentially uh, being free riders on, um, 
on German on German industry. Now, if you listen to a lot of people in uh, in Brussels, especially, but also other supporters of the of the whole EU integration project, they they charge that scepticism and growing Euroscepticism is not just a an outcome of the of some of the difficulties faced by, for instance, the Schengen zone, the uh, the euro, as we've just said, but it's also to do with the way that the uh, that the that journalism portrays. Um, what goes on in the European Union? Uh, do you think that they've got a, a, a point, or, or do you think that the journalism is a is a natural consequence of how much more is being contested in Brussels and and, and the issues that it throws up? I think the latter more. I think that journalism, although it can lead uh, and often does lead public opinion, I think also follows it. I mean, this was put to us most of all by. The, some of the French reporters and commentators, um, because France, I think more than any other country, has more obviously uh, switched from uh, the assumption of all the political class or most of the political class in France paying um, obeisance to the European Union and the need to be good Europeans and, of course, the uh, very strong alliance between France and Germany, which has been the motor of the European Union, and that's now changed in the last decade um, as French politicians begin to realize how much power they have given away, especially over budgetary issues, uh, and especially over the last five or six years as they combated the euro crisis, but also as the French economy has turned down, um, especially under the, the the present presidency, and the growth, very strong growth, um, of the Front National, the National Front, led by Marie Le Pen, um, that uh, that's, I think, changed the mood radically. And the reporters, the French reporters there, especially the broadcast reporters, realize that their journalism, which had a kind of normative basis to it of general approval of what the European Union was doing was being increasingly contested by their own audiences and the debates that were happening on television and the response to their reporting became more and more skeptical or even hostile and they themselves I think began to be more questioning um, began to revise their assumptions uh, and began to get uh, spokespeople on their programs or quoted in their newspapers, which were no longer simply repeating the central themes of the union itself, but challenging these themes, especially strongly, of course, on the populist right. Uh, the, the European crisis, uh, the euro crisis, has certainly uh, increased the amount of interest in and knowledge about uh, the European Union, but it certainly also, for journalists as well, it, uh, it really, really shone a light on just how fabulously complex the whole thing is. Do you think that that's, that complexity was what always lay behind the difficulties of, of Brussels bureaus to be able to sell their stories? Or was it other things? You mentioned in the book, the, uh, the, 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 uh, I think it was Chris Morris from the BBC talking about the difficulty of, uh, of covering something like the European Union in the, in the television age where you're looking for exciting pictures and yet all you get is man in suit getting out of a car, lots of flashbulbs, gets into a building, says something, gets back into a car. Uh, what do you think was it, uh, it was that, uh, that, w that made it so complicated? 
yes, the, the complexities were huge because, of course, it, it, the, the normal complexities of governance um, were were magnified and multiplied by the numbers of, of governments and the need for constant intergovernmental deal making, which is much of the business of the of the EU. The other thing which which made that much worse and still does is that for most people in uh, in nation states, most of the politicians in Brussels are unknown. Um, that's perhaps a little less true of the Germans who have um, uh, more of their leading politicians go into um, the European Parliament, into the European Commission, um, uh, and are therefore more recognized by the German public. But for most of the others, the, the people who go into the European Union from UK, France, Italy, Netherlands, and so on, are themselves um, not particularly well known as politicians. Um, uh, and of course, the people from other nation states are hardly known at all. Thus, you get the, for journalism, the toxic mixture between extremely complex uh, issues and policies, which take a great deal of explaining if they're to be explained properly. Um, and these are being administered by politicians whom nobody knows. And these two together mean that the, the coverage, the, the leaving aside the scandals uh, and the polemics, which can be understood by most people, the coverage which actually covers what the European Union does is, is very much for an inner elite core, for business people who depend upon it, for politicians and political activists and officials who, who uh, for whom it's a, a large uh, part of their lives, um, for intellectuals, academics, and so on. Uh, so you have a journalism for the elite, which indeed is very good and very full, but for most people, um, is uh, simply they simply don't take the time to understand. It does take a, a lot of time to understand. Um, and if they rely upon popular journalism, what there is of it is very often polemical uh, and fairly scanty and um, mainly, mainly based around drama and scandals, which of course occur and which are often important, but which don't very often mirror the complex ways in which the European Union works. Well, uh, and that, I think, is extremely difficult to avoid. Yes, it is. But it, certainly, if you listen to, to to again some of the some of the bigger boosters of the European project, they almost portray it as some kind of sinister plot to obscure or or, or misrepresent what the European Union is up to, and hence explain any uh, any malign effects the European Union has to to suffer, such as uh, alienation or, or of of certain portions of the European citizen, uh, citizenry, uh, they, they basically explain it that way around. Do you think that the, the way that the European Union is now attracting far more uh, knowledgeable coverage, uh, uh, etc., uh, do you think that that's actually going to change the European Union in the, in the eyes of some people and, and perhaps make it less of, a, of, of a, an alienating business to, to the people who actually are the, the citizens of Europe? I, I think so. I hope so, because I think that, uh, that any source of power 
I mean, journalism is, is, is largely exists in order to hold power to account, and it's very difficult to hold power to account when it's so um, untransparent. Um, uh, and I, I think it may happen, and has to a degree happened, that because the European Union has, in the, over the past five or six years, become much more central to people's concerns, is therefore a bit better understood. But the, the inherent complexity, the difficulty of understanding what it does, the difficulty of using one's own perception and knowledge about one's own uh, national politics, largely populated by people you may or may not like, but at least you understand, you know where they're from, um, uh, both in terms of their, their background and their actions. Transferring that kind of knowledge and understanding from a national to a transnational to a European level uh, is extremely difficult. And I think that the people within the Commission and the other European institutions like the Parliament, who very often have blamed and still do to a degree blame the, the media for simplifying or misunderstanding or you know, egregiously attacking what they do, overestimate the, the, the difficulty the media, the news media have in representing it and underestimate the complexity of what they do, in part because many of them have simply got used to the complexity and no longer see it as complex. They see it actually as you know, people working hard to make things better in Europe um, and are constantly being misunderstood and misrepresented by an increasingly skeptical or even hostile news media. That difference, that um, gulf between the insiders uh, and the, the news media, who are professionally or supposed to be outsiders, really hasn't come together. It still is pretty wide. There may be a bit more understanding on the news media side of how to represent the European Union because they've had to learn to do so. But the gulf remains, I think, uh, unbridged and possibly unbridgeable. Uh, one little question I wanted to throw in about the uh, the recent European parliamentary elections and the whole idea of a Spitzenkandidaten, uh, the idea that the that that a leader put forward by each of the the the, the, the um, political groupings within the European Parliament would then carry much more of a, a mandate through to uh, becoming the European Commission president, and this is obviously what happened with Jean Claude uh, Juncker. Uh, the uh, in one sense, just before it, you actually had quite disappointing figures when it came to the the way that that was all put out, uh, you know, the, the televised debates, apart from perhaps in Germany. But certainly the um, afterwards, the arguments about the fallout from this, not least of all the arguments between... Uh, uh, David Cameron here in Britain and the uh, large chunks of the news media here saying that it was it was actually quite anti-democratic uh, in comparison, for instance, to the uh, the Germans who were maintaining that this was a, a, a welcome injection of democracy into the whole process. Do you think that, the, uh, oddly enough, arguments like that will actually help to uh, to improve transparency within the European Union and, and it, in a sense, increase the amount of... Uh, of legitimate media interest in its workings. Yes, I do think that. I think that that many of the 
of the correspondents who cover Europe think that and thought that before the infusion of the, the, the more populist and nationalist parties into the European Parliament happened, they were, which was when we were conducting our research and interviews um, before the parliamentary, the Europarliamentary elections. Um, most of the commentators and reporters were looking forward to um, a much more robust democratic parliamentary debate, which they could then represent more in their in their coverage. The Europe, Europarliament is almost impossible to cover, really, because there's so little drama in it, and its powers, although not, not any longer um, uh, insubstantial, um, are fairly obscure uh, mm -hmm. and actually can only be exercised in, the, in extremity. So to have a Spitzen candidate, and of course uh, Jean-Claude Juncker was that candidate because the, he comes from the centre-right and the centre-right dominates the, the parliament, did help, did mean that there were real debates between the candidates for leadership of the European Commission. And again, as you suggest, that went down best in Germany, which has a more serious broadcasting culture, I think a more serious news media culture than most of the other states, uh, including the UK. Um, and thus, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the viewership and the audience for these kind of debates and for coverage of them was much higher. But even there, it was a minority, uh, a, a minority following. And in some countries, um, in most countries, it was tiny. So it's going to take a long time, I think, before you get um, that sense that that within Europe itself, um, competition, uh, elections, parliamentary debate, uh, contests, and personalities emerge into the, the consciousness of um, of audiences nationally, which are anyway beginning to turn away from. Um, the mainstream sources of news like newspapers and even broadcast journalism uh, and are becoming much more driven by their own interests. In other words, they will look up something they wish to see through a search engine rather than read a newspaper or watch um, a, a broadcast, a bro um, a broadcast uh, news. So it's going to be, if it does happen, it's going to be a long time and there are some trends, the trend away, as I say, from the mainstream news media, which at the moment at least are working against it. What you're getting much more, as I suggested earlier, is a kind of a niche, niches being formed where you get an awful lot of material and high class and good material for those who are particularly interested in this or that. But the general assumption that all citizens have a kind of civic duty to inform themselves of the main elements within their polity and their society and the world, the world as a whole, are weakening at the moment. That brings us nicely to the end of the book uh, and what seemed to me to be a final checklist of challenges facing journalists that they, uh, that they need to uh, engage with if they're to 
bring off what seems to be, a, let's face it, a, an enormously complex but enormously important set of institutions and bring them to life for audiences across Europe after all the people that they represent and on whose behalf they wield power. Um, can, can you just talk us through some of the more obvious and more important uh, um, items on that checklist? I think two I would really emphasise. One is uh, from the consumer point of view and one is from the producer's point of view. From the producer's point of view, I think, as we've said, uh, the experience of the last five or six years has shown that when the issues dealt with by the European Union and the European Commission especially have been important to people, then the coverage itself can uh, and very often has risen to the challenge and has produced, I think with a bit of a lag as people there realized the scale of what of the challenge we're facing, but has produced a journalism which uh, has explained, has investigated, has analyzed um, uh, quite well what's happened. If you want to follow or have wanted to follow what the European Union does, there are many, many ways which are better now um, than they were before of doing so. Um, and that has to continue, I think. I think what the lesson to the news media is is that, that, that if one can find ways, and it's not easy, but if one can find ways of explaining clearly, often using national analogies for, for transnational events, then people can follow it, and, and I think perhaps have been given the lesson that they should follow it for their own good, for the, that they should understand what's happening there because it impacts upon their lives. From the consumer's point of view, from the people who are who are at least the potential audience, I think uh, that we fell back upon what is uh, increasingly uh, coming up as a subject for discussion within, if you like, polit political come media circles. And that is that if people are going to understand the world, and they understand it at least in part through the news media, then there has to be some kind of training perhaps at school level um, or further education level um, to give them um, a kind of a primer on what the journalism can teach them, what they can get from journalism. If you're going to understand uh, and be part of a, a civic society in which, which is inevitably complex and in which politics still does play an extremely large part, then you should in a sense, be tutored in how to read and how to watch and how to understand journalism, not what to think, but, but how to get the material which aids your thinking. Mm -hmm. And hence, the, the ideas that, that civic lessons in schools should contain some element of understanding the world through journalism and increasingly through the use of the internet, I think that then becomes one way of addressing what is undoubtedly a gap in understanding between many people in, in society and the complexity of the, of, the, of the issues which their national and transnational um, governance institutions face. It would be uh, quite a complex task, quite a complex, uh, complicated task to do that, but... Uh 
Fingers crossed that the euro crisis has shown just how important the European Union is and, and its institutions and projects and how they can affect people's lives. So perhaps that's going to build up ahead of steam. And as we said earlier on, there is a, a reflection of uh, uh, in, in the historical side on how the, uh, how the journalism reacts and, and tracks the European Union. Uh, can I just finish with the uh, very, very simple question, seeing as we're, we're talking about Europe. Uh, do you have a, a favourite place in Europe that you can tell us? Uh, yeah, it's uh, dominated, it's, or rather it's, it's, uh, it's favourite because it's uh, part of my, f- my family. My wife is Italian uh, oh, and is uh, Florentine. And so, although uh, so the main, and she teaches in, a, in an Italian university, the University of Pavia, which is a medieval institution near Milan. Uh, so, my favourite place is, uh, apart from where I was born in Scotland, um, uh, is Florence, which is where she's from and where her father still lives. So, um, I'm, I, I'm part of that very large tribe. Um, in the UK and elsewhere of Italophiles, um, mm-hmm. not without certain criticisms of the way in which Italy governs itself, but um, with a huge uh, admiration um, amounting, amounting to love of uh, many of the facets of Italian life. So I suppose my, my ideal place, and it's, it's uh, a wonderful ideal place to have, is, is the city of Florence. That's not at all a bad one. Uh, I, I too am married to an Italian wife and we were lucky to spend some time in a hometown of Geneva uh, when I was writing a book about a year ago. And uh, as you say, there are you dark the, sides of Italy that it brings up. Sorry? You see the advantages of a transnational union. It's not a bad place. It's better than, uh, well, I, I, I won't be rude about other parts of the world, but there are some parts of the world that I would not be quite so happy to, to visit the in-laws in, if you know what I mean. But... Uh, Anyway, John Lloyd, uh, co-author of Reporting the EU, News Media and the European Institutions. It's been great to, to hear from you, especially so, so early in the morning in, back in Britain. Um, so many thanks indeed for your time. Thank you for, 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 sending, for giving us some time on new books in European studies. Um, and uh, I hope that the rest of the day <laughs> doesn't suffer from your early morning. No, indeed. Thanks a lot. And that was John Lloyd, co-author of Reporting the EU, News, Media and the European Institutions, a welcome, perceptive and well-written book that shines a light on far more than its central focus on reporting the EU would suggest. Thanks as ever for listening to New Books in European Studies. Remember our website, newbooksnetwork.com, and our podcast subscriptions on anything from iTunes and many other podcast platforms. Thank you for listening. (music) 